0: Welcome to Elevate, I'm so happy you're here with me today and I cannot wait to share this episode with you. As an evidence-based coach, mentor, and entrepreneur, I'm obsessed with learning and personal development as it's transformed my entire life as well as those I get to work with. And to be quite frank, it's literally the entire reason this podcast exists, to fuel your growth, gain perspective, and acquire knowledge. So buckle up, friends. You're in for a treat. And as always, thank you for supporting me and the show so we can continue to elevate our own lives as well as those you share this with. Now, let's get into it. What is going on, guys? And welcome back to another episode of Elevate. And today, I'm more than excited to have Mr. Sam Miller on the podcast. He is all, all genius on realms of functional medicine. And he's mentored me as well as one of my coaches, Ms. Haley. um, And that's how we are able to serve the people that we do with metabolic dysfunction, hormonal issues, et cetera. So Sam, for those people that are not so familiar with you and what you do, please give us a light introduction.
1: I appreciate it, Kate. Well, the the genius title is a little bit too generous. I think what she means (laughs) is I walked the path first and made some mistakes so that Kate doesn't have to make those mistakes. And so that's part of what mentorship is, is kind of learning and then uh, using those shared experiences to ideally create better, um, kind of better results for the clients that you guys are working with. So I'm glad that you found a lot of value in it. Um, And where that all started for me, you know, even before the women's health stuff was just my own personal health journey and even some family members who are kind of struggling as it pertains to their health. And it really sent me down kind of different unconventional rabbit holes because, you know, I had picked up the men's health fitness magazines and gotten into training and I was athletic when I was younger, but I wasn't necessarily in a state of optimal health, I didn't understand what hormones were or what a metabolism was, uh, or how to best sort of plan or periodize my approach to nutrition. And so a lot of the things that I teach today just stemmed from my own transformation, my own frustrations. Um, I actually had a pretty significant head injury when I was younger, a TBI or concussion, which is fairly common if you're in the sports world. But if you're kind of uh, more just into lifestyle fitness and not doing any contact sports or having any severe injuries, then you may be less familiar with the consequences of that. But that definitely sent me down. Some rabbit holes as it pertains to endocrinology. And I realized the more that I learned the content related to nutrition, metabolism, hormones, gut health, and the intersection of all those things, and some preventive health and lifestyle medicine practices, I was like, wow, this actually really has a lot of application for clients that I was working with. And at the time, I had started in the industry more as a personal trainer And I certainly had an interest in nutrition, I was doing some nutrition coaching, but really where, you know, a lot of folks get started in the health and fitness profession is just working with people, whether that's on a gym floor, or in a one to one capacity of some sort in person. So as I was kind of working through building my client roster, I'd see more and more sort of unconventional cases pop up or realizing like, hey, we probably need more than just prescribing this person some sets and reps in the gym and making these very surface level nutritional adjustments and you realize how our overall health really is a byproduct of so many other things going on in our life, like our sleep, our stress, and micronutrients, not just calories, right? And we have to look at macronutrients as well. And so this really, I guess, like ignited that interest and curiosity for me uh, that then sent me down the path of learning this information, applying it with clients, and now getting to do what I do today, which is you know, working with folks like Kate who are interested in specializing in these topic areas and being able to help individuals who maybe haven't had the answers from a conventional health coach or a Western medicine provider, because they're not always looking at kind of those deeper uh, areas or kind of root causes of why people may potentially have issues. So it's a little on my background and why I'm super passionate about these things. I think there's a a lot of frustration out there. People are confused or they feel as though they're given a lot of different answers around things, or it's just a band-aid solution of take this medication or do this versus uh, being able to truly understand what's going on and why.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. And one thing I want to start with first and foremost is a lot of people will go to the doctor and they think that pharmaceutical medication is is the solution to their problems. But when you struggle with your own health journey, you didn't start there, or maybe you did, but it didn't solve the problem, right? And one thing I'll hear a lot from people is like, I went to the doctor and they tell, they're telling me everything is fine, but I know I'm not fine. Um, and so I want to talk first why you didn't go into kind of pharmaceuticals, why you didn't go down that Western medicine path and what you found through a functional medicine approach or something a little bit broader that brought you a different perspective on how to address and really get to the root cause of people's individual problems.
1: Yeah. So when I was younger, I was definitely willing to try anything. And for for folks listening, I don't want you guys to think that like Kate and I are against an acute intervention or getting help if you need it, but sometimes things are given to people without either enough testing, enough uh, informed consent. So with anything related to controlled substances or prescriptions, it's really important that if you're going to take something, you understand why you're taking it, the, the reason for it, the implications of it, and any side effects related to it. And You know, some examples of this, it's like super common related to women's health is a lot of women will start taking birth control, but they're not clear on what type they're taking the hormone that's contained in it, they're not educated on their own menstrual health or fertility awareness, even the basics of ovulation, so just using that as a very clear cut example in my health journey, I received so many different answers from so many different doctors. I mean, one person was like, you have a pituitary tumor, like that's going to scare someone who's in their late teens, early twenties is like, what what does that mean? And they're like, it's a heterogeneous enlargement of your pituitary. I'm like, I don't know what that means, dude. Like I literally just got like out of high school. So those types of things uh, left me feeling frustrated. I mean, I went to a lot of different doctors, sometimes even going to more of uh, like research hospital settings where you feel like a Grey's Anatomy episode. So I don't think a lot of clients always go through that, but some clients do. And the frustration is there's not always the integration of like the education aspect, but then the personalization or customization to the person's life. And because I was so young, I was very malleable. And fortunately, I found some mentors who are more on the fitness side of the industry. I mean, still very health focused and ultimately settled with a doctor as well who had a background in endocrinology. And I was able to blend my forward-thinking fitness experiences with some of the conventional Western medicine stuff and kind of figure out what was best for me as a young individual. Now, today's episode, I know Kate wants to talk mostly about women's health. So my men's health story may not be as directly applicable, so I don't want to go super in the weeds with it. But I think the key takeaway is regardless of your condition, it's very important to Uh, have the testing that you need, informed consent around any medications that are prescribed, and it's not to dissuade you from ever seeking out uh, additional support or that you ever need a prescription or don't need a prescription. That's really not for us to say in the context of a podcast. It's more just about you having what you need to make the best decision for you. And unfortunately, with the amount of time that some people have with their provider, they're just not reaching that level of connection or informed consent that they need to really know what's best, you know, for their health and make those, those choices. So I think that connects really well to today's topic and kind of bring it back to women's health. But that was really my frustration was feeling like I had more questions than I had answers. There wasn't always uh you know, inquiry into nutrition and lifestyle components and things that clearly impact our physiology and our metabolism. Um, So that just can leave a lot of people spinning their wheels and very frustrated because they're getting certain advice on social media from say a health and fitness influencer or nutrition coach. And then when they go to the doctor, they're having this other experience where it's really only covering like each person is covering about 90 degrees or 180 degrees of the health Continuum or picture, right? In reality, we we really have like a 360. So if you were to look around a person, you could see their face, the side of their face, the back of their head, like completely around the entire person, right? And with our health, there's all these different viewpoints. And some of it stems from you know, our lifestyle, our nutrition, our fitness and movement practices. Sometimes we do need. You know, like if you had a orthopedic injury or you needed a surgery or you were in an accident or something, you might need some acute Western medicine care, and that's totally fine, but it's just a small portion of the picture. And then we have these other aspects, which is really where a coach comes in is seeing these other dimensions of your health. And what I think can be super powerful and where folks like Kate and I eventually kind of like strive to be is having that complete viewpoint of like the person's entire life, their health history, their healthcare timeline, any medications that they may be on. And even if we're not the ones controlling the medications, we understand the rationale for diagnosis and why it was prescribed in the first place, right? So it just basically, all of these things contributed to putting me on this path to like, how do we bridge this gray area. Cause normally what's happening is we have the health and fitness coaches looking at this small sliver or slice of your life. And then we have doctors on the other end looking at a slice, but there's this middle ground between the two and not a lot of people are covering it or integrating it or explaining how they connect with each other. And I think that's super important and can be, once you get that right, it can be super empowering in someone's health journey because it gives them a little bit more traction in terms of uh, whatever their transformation goals are.
0: Absolutely. And I like that you touched a little bit about, um, how they both are applicable and important and not one is superior to another. It's just about having the right information. And I remember when I was just a teenager and like being put on birth control without any understanding of like what it was going to do. All they tell you is you're not going to have a period. It's going to be great. And we'll alleviate all these symptoms. Um, but obviously like down the road, and as you get older and you learn a bit more, there are implications as a consequence to that decision. So I like that you touched on informed consent, but, Um, Coming back and into the topic of today's podcast, I really want to talk about PCOS. I see this a lot. It's very prominent. And like you had mentioned earlier, there's tons of people now on social media and the interwebs discussing certain health topics but some of the information and I'll have people come to me all the time of like, well, I don't know what to believe because this person says I approach it this way. And this person says, just do this. And then this person says X, Y, and Z. And then I might have this type of PCOS. So I wanted to dive in with Sam today because he's helped me understand this and serve a ton of women that we've worked with. Um, And I want to get his perspective and deep dive into PCOS particular with women's health. So Sam, let's start um, from the beginning really is defining what PCOS is, how does it present? um, And then we'll dive into some of the weeds of root causes and or consequences of that.
1: For sure. So one of the confusing elements of PCOS is it's just an umbrella criteria in Western medicine because the way that that system operates is largely through insurance-based medicine and kind of our Western care system where we need what's called a standard of care For a given diagnosis. So, if you are essentially assigned a label, the positive aspect of that, right, is there's like a standard operating procedure that we would follow, right? Kind of an SOP. The downside of that is that these labels can one, feel very defeating. It can impact our mindset and create a fixed mindset around our health and fitness. So, the challenge is then you identify with the condition as opposed to realizing the condition could have been adaptive as a result of your past behaviors. So, it shifts us out of this place of kind of like taking responsibility and having that empowerment to make the change. So that's one thing I dislike about it. The label itself is really just a classification so that if you needed a referral to say a specialist, so let's say you go from your primary care to a OB, or you go from a primary care to an endocrinologist, this label is essentially being used to kind of like shuttle you through the system and to direct you towards any care that you may need. So it kind of comes with some good intentions, but it can be inherently limiting because not all women who receive this umbrella diagnosis necessarily have all the same symptoms or the same root cause for those symptoms. So the challenging thing is then when we Begin to use this term PCOS, whether it's on social media or in written blogs or emails or podcasts or anything else, we may be talking about the same quote unquote condition or diagnosis under Western medicine, but how we got there may be very, very different. Um, And the symptoms women experience can vary pretty tremendously. There's also a lot of different stereotypes around PCOS, like it's only for, you know, only happens to obese or overweight women, uh, which actually there's quite a large number of women who are actually leaner or uh, maybe a more petite profile that may actually present with PCOS. So first and foremost, we just understand it is a Western medicine term or label. That terminology comes from a place of trying to create classification within the system so that they can then bill your insurance or prescribe medications that fall underneath uh, that umbrella classification. And then the downside is, as like proactive, preventive health-minded people, it can be inherently somewhat defeating to have a label assigned to us, right? When we hear PCOS or Hashimoto's or hypothyroid or low T or anything, you know, we begin to sort of identify uh, with that criteria, and it can be limiting in terms of how we then approach our transformation. Not understanding that, hey, like this isn't a fixed thing. This is actually super malleable, and we can make changes to our health. So. That is sort of the baseline with PCOS. There are different criteria. Um, We won't go too far in the weeds as far as the criteria, but basically with Western medicine, you don't need every single element on the list or every component, right? So let's say you have hyperandrogenism symptoms or you have cysts on your ovaries. There are different things that go into the diagnosis, and depending on your provider, they're going to essentially like work through those with you. Um, and so, let's say you're having an ovulatory cycles, and you have cysts on your ovaries, you may be sort of pushed down, you know, towards this classification. But not all women um, have the same lab results or the same blood chemistry or the same symptoms as I mentioned and how they got there could be very, very different, whether that's stemming from something like insulin resistance or poor, poor glycemic control and body composition, or we could have something completely different going on. Um, so that's just kind of like very, very baseline where we start, especially on the Western medicine side and why it's important to understand that it's just sort of this label and umbrella, but there's so much that falls underneath it and we need to be paying attention more so to the things that are underneath it, as opposed to just the label itself of polycystic ovarian syndrome.
0: Yeah. So I want to get into some of the criteria that you have to fit in order to get that label or receive it and what some of those things mean. So if someone goes in and they're like, oh, you have PCOS and they're like, great. Cause I have cysts. Like, I'm, I'm not yep. sure what that means. Right. And then they might throw some ter- medical terminology at them, but kind of like you suggested earlier when you were talking about your own experience I don't know what that means. Right. So people will get walk around with some of these, this information, but it's like, it doesn't resonate with me. I don't understand what my own condition is. So I think it's important that we dive into some of the things that would allow somebody to get that label, but then the underlying meaning of what that criteria actually means.
1: Sure. So part of it could be irregular or an ovulatory cycles. And now the problem with this is right. Like not all women know how to track their cycle or an understanding of a healthy cycle. So I think there's like inherent flaws there, right. That we're going to ask someone about their menstrual health, but we don't provide the appropriate education to like track and understand it. So in a healthy menstrual cycle, we have follicular phase and luteal phase. Uh, there's this, uh, sort of like hallmark characteristic of ovulation, which helps to, um, lead to a cascade of progesterone production, which is a very important protective hormone uh, that serves a role in pregnancy, preventing miscarriage, and it also sensitizes the body to the effects of estrogen. So it is definitely uh, an important part of female physiology. But these kind of irregular and ovulatory menstrual cycles, basically meaning cycles where you don't ovulate or kind of wonky menstrual cycles, if you will, for like layman's terms. Some women present with uh, cysts on the ovaries, which can be so if, if someone hasn't done like an ovarian ultrasound or done labs or any type of like investigation into your condition, a lot of this is going to be diagnosed based on symptoms or what they think based on your health history and sometimes even stereotypes. So it can be very important to sort of ask those additional questions. Like if you are being diagnosed with something, you know, uh, where, because some people may have like a doctor who checks the box of, oh, I, I think they have this, right? But maybe they didn't actually do any type of like ovarian ultrasound or any type of labs or anything like that. Um, so we we have the Rotterdam criteria. We also, you know, there are some physicians sort of, I believe it predated the Rotterdam criteria it was like the NIH criteria, but a big part of this is just going to be the regular menstrual cycles, cysts, hyperandrogenism was a common characteristic, which basically just means higher androgens. Androgens are typically stereotyped as a quote unquote, like male family of hormones or things like testosterone. In reality, women need testosterone and they need, you know, the appropriate amount of it, kind of the Goldilocks amount. But if it's too high or too low, that can be problematic in terms of how we feel and also the symptoms that we have. So if it's too high, maybe you have symptoms like acne or hair loss or oily skin. Uh, whereas if it's too low, maybe it's impacting your energy levels, your workouts, your libido um, and sex drive and things like that. So we need kind of the sweet spot with a lot of these hormones. And because there was traditionally this idea in earlier research of women being overweight or obese uh, with PCOS, a lot of times there's just sort of this suspicion or sometimes it was validated with labs that you know there's this hallmark characteristic of insulin resistance or poor glycemic control. And what we've seen as the research has evolved is while yes, many women with PCOS do struggle with insulin resistance, and that contributes to a state of higher androgens, poor body composition, and really this unfavorable health road that we, we end up down or cascade. What we really need to also consider is uh, a common thread between those things is actually inflammation. So if you are overweight or obese, your uh, the body composition that you have or the level of body fat will contribute to inflammation in the body. So muscle sends very different signals or chemical messages. Think of it as like a DM for your body. Your muscle sends different DMs than your fat tissue. So if you have an increased amount of body fat or poor body composition, and you're maybe at an unhealthy body weight um, relative to what would be best for you at your size and your goals, then you know, that body fat in itself is contributing some inflammatory signals to the body or think of them as like DMs going off again. And so that cascade can contribute to insulin resistance, things like gut dysbiosis, which basically just means an imbalance of gut bacteria and a number of other uh, health concerns. So while we know that like, yes, there's an issue of high androgens, yes, maybe there's an issue of glycemic control or we're having irregular cycles, you know, when we dive deeper into it, what we may see is like, okay, was it the insulin resistance that led to maybe an imbalance in certain important hormonal signals that go from the brain to the ovaries? Was it, okay, inflammation that's impacting what's going on with with hormones as well? And that's something that I believe it was around 2018. There may be a little bit of research that predates that. And then there's certainly research that came after in like 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022. But in 2018, it was this really important study that basically looked at both um, women who had lower BMIs, you know, lower waist circumferences. Essentially, they were smaller women versus women who may be uh, overweight or obese or had larger BMIs, larger waist circumference, and kind of the stereotype um, around PCOS. And the markers of inflammation in the body were actually uh, equally as good a predictor of PCOS as those conventional markers. Things like uh, that would be more indicative of like your body composition or uh, body mass waist circumference, body fat levels, things like that. So the reason why that's powerful is when we begin to look at things with, uh, you know, Kate kind of alluded to more of a functional medicine approach or lifestyle medicine or integrative health, whatever buzzword terminology you want to use. The focal point here is we have to figure out what are some of the core nutritional considerations, training considerations, lifestyle considerations that may be leading to the development of things like inflammation, oxidative stress, gut dysbiosis, And while those seem like really big terms, just think of it as different forms of kind of body burden or different stressors that your body may be experiencing. And so that's why it can be so powerful to apply, you know, lifestyle, nutrition, training, interventions, movement, walking, stress management to someone who has a case like PCOS, because that's what's helping us to resolve the root of the issue, right? Because some of these other things may be almost like the second story of the house, they're being impacted by things that are going on in the foundation of the house, right? So where a, you know, very well-versed coach can come in is helping you uh, work on your foundation of your house, as opposed to just like only treating things on the second floor. And so when providers prescribe something like birth control, a lot of times it's just masking symptoms or serving as kind of a band-aid versus actually rectifying any type of physiological dysfunction that was present that led to the diagnosis in the first place.
0: Yeah. And I think that that study is actually incredibly important. I'm glad that you brought it up because I do know that there's a massive stigma around the type of female that would get PCOS and then smaller bodied individuals who are like, oh, you can't possibly have PCOS. Um, And so I think that that is a really important point to make. But now that we have an understanding of the criteria for somebody that is listening to this, that's like, okay, I have PCOS. I understand some of the terms. I understand what, what resonates with my diagnosis here. And we talk a lot about foundations and we talk about lifestyle management, nutrition, stress, um, activity factors, and how they can start to implement or shift some of those behaviors that have inevitably compounded to get them to this point. And so for anyone that's listening, that's like, okay, I want to take my power back. I want to take control over this. It is not a lifelong condition. I understand that I can alleviate these symptoms, that I can change uh, the quality of life that I'm experiencing. Where would you have them start?
1: So I'm going to rewind and where we start because I think you also alluded to a really good point, and I want to kind of build on it. Is that some women who are diagnosed with PCOS are placed under that classification? I think what's less—it's not that that diagnosis isn't important, or that having that idea of what you may be classified as in Western medicine isn't important. What what may be more important is how we got there, and there are a lot of women who are experiencing. Various forms of reproductive hormone dysfunction or cycle irregularities or abnormalities, that doesn't necessarily mean that you automatically have PCOS. There are things like hypothalamic amenorrhea or relative energy deficiency syndrome. Some women struggle to regulate their cycle post-birth control. And if if unfortunately, if the diagnosis is a bit rushed or you don't receive ample sort of testing or conversation with your doctor, have the opportunity to really describe your health history and everything that's going on, you may unfortunately be placed in a category just for the ease of treatment and like for brevity purposes. And so be careful. You know, I've definitely seen some women who have been placed in a category where it's like, yeah, you know, you may be experiencing some menstrual cycle irregularities, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're, you know, falling into every single one of the criteria of PCOS. So first and foremost, um, you know, in, in, taking your power back, right? Because we're talking about things you can do in your transformation. I think it first begins with like, it it can be more than the label to begin with, and uh, some people are improperly classified, and so just understanding that, hey, you know, uh, menstrual cycles can uh, deviate or have you know anovulatory cycles for various reasons, it doesn't necessarily mean you automatically have PCOS. So I think that's important because there are a lot of women who are experiencing women's health concerns or women's health or reproductive hormone issues or fertility concerns, and they have been sort of pushed into this popular category of PCOS, right? So I think that's the first thing. Second thing is just understanding that PCOS, reproductive hormone health, all of these things are largely a reflection of our metabolic health as a whole. And some of the key drivers for that are going to be, you know, things like our baseline activity level, our manners, like how we go about eating. So If you are following more of a standard American diet or Western style of eating, that can be inherently inflammatory. It tends to be a little bit higher in calories, harder to regulate uh, our blood sugar from that perspective, and tends to be less dense in key micronutrients that are important for women's health. So that's super low-hanging fruit is if you're struggling with that, you know, definitely starting with just that key sort of nutritional principle and basic movement, right? Things like walking and resistance training. Now, if you're coming from the other side of the spectrum, because some of you may have followed Kate for quite some time and through her competition years and more of a uh, high intensity fitness journey, if you will, it may involve a period or a season of less training to reduce inflammation. It may require a different season of nutrition. So if you've been in a caloric deficit for a long period of time, getting back to healthy menstrual cycle health may require maintenance calories, right? So not all women will follow the exact same approach to get back to a healthy status quo, But there will be a few common themes. There's probably some adjustments to our movement. There's probably going to be some adjustments to our nutrition. And then everybody needs to be focusing on their sleep and stress management. That's kind of a given for everyone. That's what everyone's going to have in common here. Sleep, stress management, some walking that's going to do the body good across the board, uh, regardless of kind of your case here. Um, No one's necessarily going to benefit from like shortchanging their sleep or getting super stressed out. So those will be the key themes. And I'd say from a nutrition perspective, if you kind of look and audit your health journey and you're like, I'm someone who has been the chronic dieter, I've definitely, you know, uh, been pursuing fat loss for a really long time. I've trying to been, I've been deliberately attempting to get into these calorie deficits or have a history as a competitor or, you know, being beach ready, whatever the case may be. That is a very specific stimulus for your body. Uh, if you've been on the other end of the spectrum and you're like, "Hey, yeah, I've been a little looser with my nutrition, more nights out, maybe I haven't been tracking as much, or I kind of just been eating what I want to, or you know, maybe drifting a little bit from your norm," that can also you know impact our body as well, especially if you've seen a change in your body composition during that time. So. Um, women may end up in this place of having that higher inflammatory status changes in gut health for different reasons. Um, but either way, we're going to use some of some similar levers to kind of get us back to our, you know, I guess our our health goal, goals and kind of rectifying some of the symptoms uh, that are presented when someone is diagnosed with PCOS.
0: Yeah. And I think it's such a complicated yet simple thing, right? Because we, we wait to the point in which the lagging metric is the label in which we receive, but the fundamental foundation in which that diagnosis is built upon is lifestyle factors that have caused the downward spiral of internal health down regulation, up regulation, depending on what, which markers are off and why. Um, I do want to throw kind of a, a random question at you mostly for your own opinion, but also for the audience's understanding, because one thing that we talk about a lot with women's health is birth control. And obviously there's lots of different types and depending on how long you were on them and what the profile of hormones was, the impact that it can have. And I know that you touched on fertility as well. And so I do see a lot of women who have had PCOS want to get pregnant and struggle with infertility. Um, And then they will be prescribed birth control, or maybe the downstream effect of coming off of birth control is that they now have PCOS as a diagnosis due to some of the lab markers being off after coming off of uh, birth control. So what is your opinion on birth control? I would like to hear your personal opinion or experience with that. And for women that are struggling with fertility, um, I know that this is a very complicated topic, but I do see it quite often. There's a lot of stuff around IVF and I've heard, um, I haven't taken a deep dive into the literature. So I would appreciate your kind of understanding of that if you have it as to, while it is something that people utilize, I'm not sure of how highly successful that approach is with helping women in fertility.
1: Yeah, so we'll kind of unpack that one layer at a time because there's definitely some meaty meaty stuff there for sure. So we'll start on the birth control side because IVF can also depend. There is male factor infertility as well. So, and I I believe there's a recent statistic that there's kind of a combination between couples, right? There's a certain percentage where um, it may be driven by uh, female reproductive health. On other sides, it may be driven by uh, the health of the man and his, sperm morphology, Mm -hmm. motility, all that. And then in a lot of cases, it's actually both. So in that case, IVF can actually be, um, a life-changing medical intervention for a lot of people. And I actually have some friends who recently, um, you know, had success through, through IVF. So I don't want to completely, uh, downplay the importance of that for people who are trying to build a family and maybe have some, have been dealt some, maybe less than favorable cards as it pertains to their health in other ways, right. Besides just kind of PCOS and things like birth control that we're talking about today. So I'm going to go back to the birth control aspect first, and then we can kind of breeze through it, but that's sort of my, uh, baseline sort of thought process with IVF. So for birth control, there's a number of different generations of birth control types of birth control. But the idea is we're providing the body with a source of exogenous hormones, basically meaning these are hormones that are in the prescription provided to the body from the prescription. So whether that's a pill, or if you were to get a implant like Nexplanon or a shot like Deproprovera, those things are providing the body with hormones. And the key characteristic of birth control is it's intentionally sort of modifying this normal communication between the brain and the ovaries to prevent uh, someone from conceiving, right? That's the the goal of birth control is contraception. So as much as it's used as a uh, prescription and quote-unquote solution or sort of band-aid for some of these reproductive health concerns or conditions like PCOS, that's not really what it was designed to do necessarily. It's just a side effect that seems to mask some of the symptoms of conditions like PCOS. And I'll explain that in a minute. But the way birth control works is by interrupting, you know, how we talked about those chemical messengers earlier that come from muscle or fat tissue. We actually have very important messages that go from our brain to our ovaries or, you know, for uh, men's health, there's a parallel consideration would be the communication between the brain or pituitary gland and your basically essentially your testicular axis and then the production of testosterone. So women have sort of the same thing going on in terms of their monthly menstrual cycle. It's very important to have that cascade and have that signaling going on. Birth control comes in and essentially because it's providing a source of those external or exogenous hormones that we talked about, it suppresses our body's own hormone production, which if you ever pick up like a science C paper or you hear people talk online and like big language, they'll say like endogenous, right? So because we're taking the prescription, it's impacting our own production of the hormones. And so women aren't ovulating or getting that, uh, production of progesterone that we talked about when we were looking at the luteal phase that I mentioned earlier. So normally a free cycling woman will have her follicular phase, ovulation and luteal phase. If we're on birth control, we don't necessarily have that same ebb and flow. We're also missing out on ovulation and then that progesterone that's very uh, helpful, kind of the mid luteal phase. So with that said, there are so many different types of birth control, probably would be a podcast in itself. What's important to understand for PCOS and why it's prescribed for PCOS is most forms of birth control increase certain binding proteins. Also, sounds like a fancy science term, but just think of it as something that, uh, if you're struggling with those high androgens that we talked about, birth control is essentially uh, masking those symptoms because the binding proteins are going to prevent the androgens or testosterone or DHT, whatever hormone it may be, from doing the things that it's doing. So it elevates. SHBG first and foremost. It's also suppressing something called LH, which is one of those direct messages or chemical messengers that goes from your brain to your ovaries. A lot of women with PCOS have an imbalanced ratio of LH to FSH. It's very, very high LH to FSH. It's greater than a three to one ratio. And so birth control is coming in and it's disrupting that signaling and it's bringing that down uh, via the medication. But that's intentional because LH is part of a normal menstrual cycle where women, you know, ovulate. So it's basically blunting that or kind of shutting that down. So we're shutting down the communication between the brain and the ovaries. This is intentional. And I actually have some interesting quotes. I may have to share a presentation with you, Kate, that I did fairly recently. It's kind of a guest speaking thing on birth control. But it's one of the only prescriptions that's been FDA approved that doesn't enhance the function of a bodily system. So if you think about Mm. just about any other medication, it's like designed specifically to enhance or improve the function of our physiology or a deficit that we have. Birth control is actually intentionally a form of dysfunction and shutting things down. So when you think of it as just very basic, like super surface level terminology, no big sciencey terms, Most medications are brought in to enhance something. So if I gave someone metformin who was pre-diabetic, that's a insulin sensitizing medication to help people who are pre-diabetic or headed towards metabolic syndrome, that is designed to help improve the condition or pathology of someone who's moving towards pre-diabetes, diabetes, metabolic syndrome. Birth control is not necessarily the same, right? It's actually coming in and it's sort of overriding our our own physiology and that internal or endogenous hormone production. So that's what's very tricky about it. Now, as far as there are social implications, economic implications, the history of birth control dates back to like a very interesting time in human history. There was obviously a um, uh, women's rights movement, civil rights, like we're post-World War II, women in the workforce. So there's a lot of like very important historical context surrounding birth control that you have to include in the conversation when you're talking about women's health, because if you're taking that 360 degree view of women's health, you have to think about what did this mean financially for women or economically for women or family planning for women or having control, you know, related to certain things um, in terms of their own health or maybe undesired or unwanted pregnancies and so on and so forth. So once again, probably more than like in our PCOS conversation or, or little container that we have here in terms of everything, as far as what I think of birth control, I'd say uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is that we provide women with the education that they need to make the best choice for them. Uh, and my job is to be that conduit of information to share with everyone, whether you're uh, like, regardless of whether you are going to take birth control or not, or a partner is going to take birth control, spouse, loved one, sister, you know, whatever, the, or daughter, whatever the case may be, we just need to make sure that people understand how birth control works. Is it appropriate for the case at hand? Is it something that's going to be best for that individual? And do they, does that person understand the side effects, implications, and what may needs to be you know, done or necessary to improve their reproductive health post birth control, because that doesn't really happen right now. So as much as I may have an opinion here or there, like situationally, I think a lot of it just comes down to understanding and teaching just basic pharmacology. I'm not think. I'm not saying everybody needs to go be a pharmacist or doctor and understand things at like super science-y nerdy level. But even just that baseline understanding of how this is impacting my menstrual cycle, and then the next phase is like, what are some potential side effects of that, and how long should I potentially be on this medication, and then what are some of the ramifications when I come off the medication? Also, understanding there there is a difference in types the symptoms, side effects and experience that you have will be different depending on the hormones that you're taking. So women who take a very long acting progestin, like something like Depo-Provera, which is an injection is going to be a, l- a little more suppressive than maybe some of the other birth control alternatives. There's also different uh, modalities and, and ways that we can get the birth control, whether it's from, you know, we talked about an exponent on Depo-Provera, the birth control pill, hormonal IUD, so on and so forth. So A lot of different options out there for women. I think the most important thing is we have to kind of lead with education and a bit more on the side of like, if we could in a perfect world help people with testing and identification. Because so many women actually go on birth control, not because of the contraception aspect or preventing them from conceiving. A lot of women go because it's like, oh, I'm a teenager and I have acne or I'm having uncomfortable menstrual cycles or PMS. Well, if that was driven by nutrient deficiencies, inflammation, gut issues, and you know, if your acne was driven by gut issues, nutritional deficiencies, and maybe some uh poor responses to certain foods that could have been eliminated, well, we're not really fixing like the reason you had the acne or skin condition in the first place. So that's just a very simple example why a lot of women are prescribed that medication in their teens, and then they'll stay on it for a decade. I mean, I've had clients previously, uh, prior to being more focused in the mentorship and continuing education capacity, you know, women in their fifties who otherwise like probably would have gone into menopause we're like still on birth control. And we're at a time in history where kind of that, where we look back at that sort of critical juncture for women, whether it's, you know, 1940s, fifties, sixties, seventies, so forth. Um, we're now at a point where we're seeing generations of women who have spent most of their entire adult life on birth control, on hormonal contraceptives. We didn't, you know, when this medication was approved, it was mainly approved because it prevented you from getting pregnant and there weren't any like alarming immediate health concerns. Right. But it's very hard to like wait 50 years to approve a medication. So the way that things work when the FDA approves something is we may have a clinical trial, but it's not necessarily, you know, we're not looking over your whole entire lifetime you know we may have a few years of monitoring people's responses to to the medication and it's also not like the physique minded body composition optimized health optimized hormone optimized individual right these are you know, just general population, average people were taking the medication who wanted to take the medication to prevent pregnancy, right? It wasn't like, oh, I want, you know, perfect skin and I want to build muscle and I want to be lean and I want to hit my body composition goals and I want optimal gut health and hormone levels and all that. That's not really, you know, they're not looking at those things. They're basically going to look at like major body systems and any type of like very large Western medicine concerns and making sure that they're not putting people at risk, um, or, or that these are very minor side effects that can be included on like the insert of a medication, right? That's really what they're, they're looking at in terms of that. So we're at a really interesting time where we've had women who have spent decades upon decades on birth control. And so I think, you know, as with most things in life we will benefit from having more information and seeing, you know, any additional data that kind of comes out over time. But, you know, my biggest thing is I just think, for younger women, it's education and informed consent. And then when women do reach a point in their life, kind of coming back to the IVF conversation and fertility, when women become more fertility focused, there needs to be education of, okay, this is what was going on when you were on birth control. These are some important considerations if you are trying to conceive or family planning. And there's not a great segue for that. And that's why I've seen women who go three years, five years, eight years with no cycle post-birth control. And that can be you know, that's not good, especially when we start to look at long-term cardiovascular risk and osteoporosis for women, because we need healthy estrogen levels, uh, estrogens, cardioprotective, neuroprotective, also very important for bone density. So for all the ladies out there, like this goes far beyond just your cycle health and family planning and fertility. It's also like something we need to consider for your overall longevity and health span too. So you know, please seek out the appropriate um, education or coaching or medical providers that you need to, you know, make sure that that's in the right place. So that was probably like kind of moving into the fertility conversation. One of the implications of birth control is because we've had that suppression, getting that system back online and having women get back to that place of healthy cycles and ovulating again can be a challenge. And so that's where some women, if they are unable to conceive initially, may turn to IVF, But a lot of times what's happened is it's just maybe we're on that longer acting birth control, or we had just suppressed that system for a long period of time, and we had a harder time kind of getting that back. Uh, and there are some prescriptions that can help with that. But also there are some things you can do uh, naturally as well.
0: What's up team? I interrupt this broadcast to formally invite you to our live event in McKinney, Texas, Saturday, October 21st. If you are into health, fitness, and personal development, you are not going to want to miss this. We are gonna have industry-leading experts talking all about nutrition, health optimization, and understanding yourself because you deserve to be all that it is that you can be. So I hope to see you there. For more information, click the link below in the description. And now we'll get back into our episode. Yeah. So that was fascinating. And I appreciate you pointing out the fact that that was kind of the first thing post uh, or into the sexual revolution for women um, that also suppressed a natural function of the human body, um, which was kind of my first, I don't want to say red flag, but in my brain was kind of a red flag when I was looking at medicine and I was looking at Western medicine And even assessing myself, I was on Depo-Provera and then Nexplanon um, back to back at a younger age. And so then I started diving into the research and I won't get too heavy into this, but one thing that I thought was fascinating um, was there was this female and I can't remember her name, but she looked at doing a study where birth control actually completely suppressed or upregulated different functions of people's neurology and it changed their personality. And so yeah, like who they were like, your, yeah, attracted yeah, to and who choice. they ended up, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that is fascinating yeah. uh, because you don't think, no one tells you that. I didn't <laughs> know that. Women will
1: pick different uh, partners or mates based on uh, birth control. And there's a number of different studies on this now. Uh, I believe there was an additional study that also showed so we have different portions of our brain and sorry, Kate, I just get super excited about this. So when you're talking- about like, too, no, I'm it's so good. Glad this is that the you're stuff that so I like I to like, talk I about. Didn't, I didn't want to forget what I was saying and I, I have a bad habit. Unfortunately, I get super I'm like a golden retriever sometimes. So please forgive me. Um, the other study besides partner choice that was fascinating related to our psychology and our brain function is prolonged uh, birth control prescription usage seems to have an effect on the hippocampus and amygdala. And so women who are- on birth control can have a little bit more reactivity and fear-based responses as far as what's going on with the amygdala and hippocampus. So amygdala is a little bit more of our kind of uh, ancestral brain, like looking out for threats, being reactive, being fearful. And so for higher level thinking and being calm and composed and sort of reacting to a stimulus over time, it's important to have balance between those two systems. And so the fact that there's not only implications in terms of the partner that you may pick. And I think there's even something on like scent and t-shirts. I don't know how, I don't know the strength of that study from like a controlled trial perspective, but there is a study. And then there's also that research on the amygdala and hippocampus. And for women, it's like, we don't want women like reactive and fearful and all these things and suppressing, you know, uh, hormone production. So you'll see different providers, practitioners, educators, really range in opinions from like, Oh my God, this is chemical castration to like, Oh, well, women should have the ability to choose and use this medication to have control over their fertility and a number of other different things. And it can be used strategically and so on and so forth. So like there's a huge wide range of opinions. There's also a very wide range of studies. And then depending on who's conducting these things, you're going to get a variety of it. So I think it's important for women to get a taste of not only uh, like you said, so you were on Nexplanon and Depo-Provera, those are uh, those are progestins, and progestin is very suppressive to both male and female physiology, because they actually tested out some male birth control, and that was not going super well, um, and like crashes your testosterone levels. So birth control definitely has some very unique implications, and I think it's because as humans, we're like playing around with these systems. And and we know a lot, like we're pretty smart, like we're evolved in our scientific method and understanding of things, we're testing things, but the body is this like magnificent system. And when you mess with one system, you're messing with other things too. You're messing with neurology, you're messing with, you know, so you're messing with brain function. Um, you know, attraction and the the whole science that goes into all of that and relationships and when what was actually happening with like mate choice and satisfaction and attraction and people um, being together and and partner choice. And then there's a massive connection between like our, our hormones and our immune system and our gut health and all of these different things. So it's really, really super interesting. And then also the fact that birth control is designed to prevent you from conceiving, but it's going to like crush your sex drive. So you're like not actually going to want to reproduce in the first place. So it's it's just a lot of like very interesting rabbit holes you can go down. There's certainly a combination of both science-based, evidence-based thinking and some conspiracy theories and kind of like a Venn diagram between the two. But it is, I do want uh, women to understand that it does go beyond just, oh, well, this is convenient. I'm not having a period or oh, like i don't have to worry about getting pregnant like there's other things that we should be thinking about because women's health is bigger than that right it's not just only that aspect or only managing uh something temporarily like a skin condition there's so many other uh, facets of it that we that we need to discuss and that's why when you ask me the question of like my opinion of birth control it's well really we have to look at the whole history and historical timeline and what happened in terms of you know Uh, women and transitioning and you know into the workforce and economic and financial implications and also depending on who you ask from like a historian perspective economic perspective financial perspective whether someone's like um, you know and where they stand in terms of human rights and all these other things you're going to get so many different opinions Mm -hmm. and so what I really try to do is just extract a combination of like history and research and then I want you guys to be able to think for yourself as far as like how does this apply to me and what do I need to do in my life based on my goals to, you know, cause that's what I wish someone would have done for me to kind of bring yeah. a circle back to like my health journey is someone giving me the information to make an informed decision and figuring out, okay, based on where I'm at in my life, what is best for my quality of life and how I want to live and my long-term health and my goals um, and being able to kind of decide from there. So I think a lot of times that's missed for women whether it's around PCOS, birth control, any women's health condition, really, especially as we get into some of these more quote unquote functional health topics. Um, And that's why I think it's super important, like for the work that you're doing and, and the stuff that we also talk about all the time.
0: Yeah. And this has been absolutely fascinating as I knew that it would be, and I still have so many questions and you could take this conversation, I mean, hours, because it's just so fascinating and you can get into the weeds with some of this stuff. But I think that you made the best point of all, which is you know, we got into this because I know you do. And, and I resonate with that idea a lot is that I aim to be the the person that I wish that I had um, because there isn't a ton of information and we still don't necessarily know the longitudinal consequences of these types of issues or these, these solutions that we've presented as what look like solutions, but could be potentially problematic depending on the dosage frequency and longevity of that usage. So I think that that's really important. I think the biggest takeaway is one understand the specificity of your condition Two, If you're looking at, you know, kind of surface level solutions, you should pair them with lifestyle factors, most importantly, and make sure that you're educated on what the solution is, how long it should be taking and the potential consequences of going down that rabbit hole. So, um, Sam, as always, I appreciate your time and your, your genius, even though he will deny it a little bit. Um, please tell everybody where they can find you if they want to continue to consume your content
1: you know, I can't like jump in on your conversation and also have like a massive ego around uh, intelligence or anything, or then, you know, everyone listening just thinks I'm an asshole. So uh, in terms of that conversation, I did just want to make sure folks, you know, reach out for testing too. And a lot of times you're not always going to get that from your primary care physician. So part of your education and informed consent should also be having a pulse on your current health status. And even if you are healthy right now, even if you don't have symptoms right now, get that baseline so that, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, you know what that looks like to feel good. And if you're in a place where you don't feel good, you need that information to sort of set your path uh, in front of you and to get the help that you need. So just making sure that all of you feel, um, you know, uh, informed and empowered to go ahead and do that. As far as where I kind of live and post and share, uh, I have a podcast called Sam Miller Science it's mostly kind of intermediate to advanced higher level information, uh, that I share for health professionals, or if you're just super passionate about this stuff, as it pertains to women's health, your transformation, nutrition, metabolism, I have a book called metabolism made simple. Uh, it's available at metabolism or on Amazon. And, uh, as far as just kind of hanging out online, I'm pretty much similar science on just about every social media. Uh, so my Instagram similar science and my website is samlerscience.com So I appreciate it, Kate. And, uh, I'd say if you're you're kind of new to my world, just absorb some free content and hopefully there's something valuable for you related to where you're at in your journey.
0: Awesome, thank you so much, Sam. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks, Kate.